Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the History of Economic Thought. So in the last episode, we went through and we looked at an interesting economist by the name of John Law. But in this episode, I really want to get into the history of economic thought. So I thought for this episode, we would go back and we would try and figure out who is the first economist. Now, there's a couple problems with doing this. Um, number one is that we can only look through recorded history. So we've got to go through writings to try and determine who is the first economist. But I've got an idea for who it is. Now, if you look this up online, what you'll probably find is that the common answer is Adam Smith. However, for this podcast, I'm going to make the claim that the first economist comes along before in the times of ancient Greece. So, without further ado, let's get into it. So with the history of Greek economic thought, when we're trying to determine who the first one is, we run into one problem. Um, so one interesting character that's going to be reappearing whenever we talk about Greek economists is they're going to bring up a character by the name of Socrates. Now, Socrates is a real guy, but he actually never wrote anything down. So what we know about him is through what others talk about him in their own writings. So we are going to talk about his ideas and beliefs, but it's hard to know if these ideas and beliefs are actually his or not. So because of that, um, I'm not going to make the claim that he's the first economist. But there is a guy close to him that I am going to make that argument with. And he's a guy by the name of Xenophon. Now, I'm temporarily stating that he is where the beginning of economics occurs. Um, this, will, this may change as time goes on. And if it does, then I hope we get to make an episode on that first. But for right now, we're going to say Xenophon is. So who is Xenophon? The guy where we're going to say starts the history of economic thought. Well, he's born in 362 BC. And he's a part of a group that's called the Socratic Philosophers aptly named after Socrates himself, because they're going to talk about Socrates and his ideas and thoughts. So there's some major themes that are going on with the Socratic philosophers that we sort of need to understand because the people who are going to be talking about in this episode all are Socratic philosophers. So we sort of got to know what Socrates was trying to say when he was around. And the big points that Socrates makes is that philosophy should, it should better society. It should better people's lives. And the things that he's going to focus on that he believes we should do in order to cause this to happen is number one, to focus on reason. And this is big for the time. You know, Greece at this point is heavily involved with their pantheon of gods. And so things that go against the gods, Greek society viewed as wrong. And for Socrates, this sort of holds back Greek society. It limits their potential. And there's also some other things that he's going to put at the center of what we as a society should maximize. And there's sort of three main points. And that's love, goodness, and compassion. Now these three ideas we're going to see spread throughout all of the different philosophers we're going to be talking about. So now that we've got this idea of what the Socratics are, we're going to go ahead and we're going to move into Xenophon. 
who's going to be talking about the life of Socrates. I do want to mention that if you are interested in the life of Socrates and you do know, want to know more, then there is a really great source. It's a book called The Hemlock Cup by Bettany Hughes. So if you're interested in that, I definitely recommend checking it out. It sort of tries to piece together the life of Socrates using the different writings and things that we've discovered through archaeological discoveries. So if you are interested in that book, I definitely recommend to go check it out. But let's get on to Xenophon real quick. So who is Xenophon? The guy where we're going to say starts the history of economic thought. Well, he's born in 362 BC. And he actually wrote an interesting book called Economicus, which has the name Economics inside of it. So we've got some pretty good evidence to state that he might be the first. He's got a book titled Economics. He's from the year 362 BC. So what does he talk about, though, in this book? Well, it's a written conversation between Critobulus and Socrates. And again, here we go with Socrates. Um, and he is going to appear in pretty much everyone we talk about's writings. But in the story, at the very beginning almost, Socrates asks Critobulus a question. He says, tell me, Critobulus, is economy like the words medicine, carpentry, building, smithing, metalworking, and so forth, the name of a particular kind of knowledge or science? And this is interesting because he's asking in this, you know, is economics a form of science almost? And this is important if we're going to talk about the history of economic thought because it adds some validity to the idea that we're thinking about this as a sort of science. It's not something that it should be taken frivolously. There's real thought behind it. Now, I don't want to be disingenuous, though, with what I'm saying here. Xenophon isn't thinking of economics here in a macroeconomic sense. You know, he's not thinking of this on a global or how we interact with other countries. He's really looking at this through the eyes of somebody who's just trying to understand how to run their home better, or as we may call it, household management. And this can be more closely related to maybe personal finance or the beginnings of microeconomics. But these ideas that he's going to talk about are important for building the greater framework of economics. And so that's why I'm going to claim that he's the first one. So what are some of the ideas that he actually does talk about in this book? Well, one of the things he's going to talk about is the idea of assets and liabilities. Now, this is a personal finance type topic. But without understanding assets and liabilities, it's really hard to understand the foundation of economics. So why does Xenophon bring this up? Why does this interest him? Well, it's because he's going to make a claim in this book that not all things are good for you. And this is an important argument. This is an argument we're going to see a lot on down the line. But today, for how Xenophon's going to describe it, is that some things actually don't add to their owner, but they drain them. Now, Xenophon also is going to discuss the idea of what we're going to call conspicuous consumption. And this is a real topic. 
So how does he describe this one? Well, I think the best way of determining this is by looking at a quote in his book. And again, this is Socrates speaking to Critobulus, and he says to him, Yes, for my property is aptly sufficient to meet my wants, whereas you, considering the parade you're fenced about with, and the reputation you must live up to, would barely be well off, I take it, if what you have were already multiplied by three. So what is he saying here? Well, he's saying here that, you know, Critopolis, you have all of this. You have all of this wealth that you parade yourself with. But look at how torn down you are by the stuff you have. It almost weighs down your soul. And Socrates is saying, yes, I may not have much, but look at how light I walk. You know, you aren't even satisfied if what you had were tripled, yet I'm satisfied with the little I already have. And this is an interesting idea, because in Conspicuous Consumption, we're saying that, you know, you're buying all this stuff, but it doesn't actually bring any value. And Xenophon's pointing this out, that, you know, maybe this demand isn't needed. Xenophon is going to bring up some other ideas in this book. None of them are very much economics related. So we're going to fly through quite a few of these. But to give a quick summary of some of the other ideas he's going to talk about, he's going to emphasize the virtues of hard work, the efficient organization of household activity and production, the benefits of the division of labor, something that's going to rock the world later on down the line, and he's going to stress the importance of education. So Xenophon does a good job of really creating that foundation of economic thought that we need to move forward. So who are we going to move forward with? Well, from Xenophon, there's a lovely transition that moves into a guy named Plato. Now, you're probably well aware of Plato. He's quite popular when it comes to the field of philosophy. But he actually does bring up some good ideas on the field of economics as well. And this isn't surprising. One thing we're going to discover when it comes to economists early on in economic thought is that quite often they're philosophers who just so happen to dabble almost accidentally into the idea of economics. But as a result, he is going to come up with some incredible ideas that are going to be quoted way on down the line. And so it's important that we get a true understanding of Plato and his revolutionary ideas. So with Plato, what are these ideas that he's going to come about? Why are people quoting him so much? Well, he's sort of going to begin like the first communist ideas in the world of economics. Now, he's not going to call these communism or anything like that. So I wouldn't say he's a communist exactly. But he is going to start to set the groundwork or the foundation of these coming ideas. And it's important to note that Plato is what is called a moralist. You know, he believed that a country should be run with morals. And this is important. If you look back at our last episode, we had to talk about, you know, what should we as individuals, what should we focus on? What should we maximize? And I also asked you guys, you know, what should society maximize? Well, Plato answers this question with morals. He believes that a country should maximize morality. It's a decent answer. 
But how should a society, you know, foster these moral virtues? Well, Plato's got an idea for this. And the idea that Plato has is that he believes the state should require a rigorous system of education to teach people morality or moral virtues. Now, this isn't a philosophy podcast, so we're not going to get into, you know, is forcing morality on people uh, morally correct, but skipping over that for now. The way he thought this system should work is that for the city to sustain the practice of justice, the education must proceed the creation of a class of philosophers that would take turns to rule a city. And so as a result of this, he comes up with some interesting ideas of, you know, how should we structure society? Well, first he believes that the state should be run by what he's going to call philosopher kings. And to create a philosopher king, we must radically transform society. Number one, we must ensure that all children begin their education on an equal basis. And I'd say this is one thing that most people can get behind. You know, educating kids on an equal basis. Equality, however, is a very hard thing to obtain in reality. And we're going to see this a lot. And the reason for this is just that life has an undefinable amount of factors that determine some parts of the world. And Plato isn't going to know many of these factors due to the portion of history, but he is aware of one major factor, and that's parents. He realizes that parents actually pose a problem for children. Parents aren't uniform. Some parents are more adept at you know, being there for their kids. You know, they've got different kinds of jobs. They've got different activities outside of that. You know, some people may be really motivated to take care of their kids, while some may not be. So, Plato has to get rid of this problem. So, how does he plan to solve for this? Well, he, he proposes the idea of the destruction of the family system. This way, by allowing society to raise children, you know, you sort of equal the playing field in a way. Now, this idea is sort of, it's sort of unreasonable. But we're going to talk about Aristotle soon, and we're actually going to let him make this argument, because he's going to counter this idea of Plato's. But I do want to give Plato a benefit of the doubt. You know, he in this idea, was sort of progressive. Um, in fact, he actually believed that when it came to philosopher kings, that men and women both had the ability to reason on the same level. And although Plato would say, you know, on the average, men are stronger and they're taller, this isn't a steadfast rule. You know, there's a lot of extremes, especially when it comes to behavioral science. And this is an important concept to take away in economics. Oftentimes, we can sort of get stuck down with saying like, oh, this is a steadfast rule, or this is a steadfast rule. But oftentimes in economics, that's not the case. Things exist on a curve. And Plato was able to recognize this, and as a result was able to recognize that, you know what? There are going to be some women out there 
who are actually going to be better at being philosopher kings than some men might be. You know, they're going to have the ability to reason better than many men are. But now that we've sort of discussed, you know, everybody can be a philosopher king. You know, we should break up the family system in order to equalize the playing field. We've got to ask ourselves, you know, why do we need philosopher kings? Why are they so important? What is a philosopher king compared to a regular king? Well, for Plato, it was quite simple. You know, he felt like that philosophy, the skill of philosophy was to sort of discern the divine order of things. You know, it was to let you know what was right between what was wrong, to let you know the order of nature, and to get to this closer perfection, this goal of maximum efficiency on like a government scale. And so he's trying to increase to get to this maximum efficiency. But we've got to ask ourselves, you know, what does Plato mean by maximum efficiency here? Because again, maximum efficiency is whatever we deem it to be. We have to decide what it is that we're trying to get the maximum efficiency out of. Plato gives us an idea. And here's what he's going to say. You know, this is what we should be aiming for. And he gives it to us whenever he's talking about what he's going to call his utopia. You know, this is how he thinks society should be structured and what it, a utopia should look like. So therefore, we can try and get a little closer to this overall goal. Now, he's going to describe this in a very simplistic manner. Although for Plato, he's actually going to say that this is an attribute and it's a good attribute to have. So here's what he's going to say. He's going to say that this perfect society, you know, it's going to be too poor to excite the greed of its neighbors. Its soldiers are going to be tough enough to deter them. And this is because everyone is going to be doing what nature fits him to do. Nobody is going to have the desire to do anything different. And novel tastes will be unknown. The guardians, which we can assume the way he describes this is sort of like the government or like the federal government as we might describe it today, is going to organize the breeding of the ruling elite in such a way that the right people are born into the right positions. Just what the calculations are that they perform and how they do it. Now, this idea that we're talking about here, um, although Plato calls it a utopia, I think nowadays we would probably view as this dystopia. But it's important to note that like during Plato's time, this idea can seem like a utopia. Remember, Plato's a part of the Greeks, and the Greeks at this time are in constant strife with their neighbors. So therefore, feeling protected is a very valuable resource at the time. So I think it's easy to see why Plato could sort of view this system as a utopia in a sense. He does, however, almost contradict the idea that this is a utopia. And he may not see it this way, but he's going to come up with this sort of cyclical theory of his political society. And that's because, you know, if you're thinking about a utopia, you might think to yourself, well, if something is a utopia, and it's as simple as Plato describes it, then it's certainly not going to go away, right? It's a utopia. Things aren't supposed to go wrong in it. Well, Plato doesn't agree with this. In fact, that he says it will certainly not endure forever. Something's going to go wrong. 
you know, the mathematics of procreation may be miscalculated, or some other thing might cause the guardians or the government to lose their skill, and then a cycle of political change is going to happen. Which is an interesting idea, because as a result, he's basically stating that the central government, or the guardians, as we might say, you know, they're going to have so much power, and inevitably they're going to mess up, and this is going to cause everything to fall. And again, we're going to be talking about Aristotle in the next episode, but in the episode after that, we're going to be talking about Aristotle's arguments against Plato and Plato's sort of rebuttal. So we're going to be going into this idea more. And this is where we're going to be ending the episode today. But I did just want to give you guys an insight into who the first economist was, who, again, we stated was Xenophon, and Plato, who is going to be the guy who tutors Aristotle, the man who's going to counter his arguments. So I hope you guys enjoyed the episode, and I can't wait to get into Aristotle next episode and continue this theme and this arc we've got going on on the Greek philosophers. I'll see you guys in the next episode.